It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we have sung this morning and we have heard sung some powerful words. And yet we know that your word, because of your power and the power of your Holy Spirit, is what genuine power is. And so, Lord, will you in these next few moments... Will you teach us? Will you move us and mold us and cause us to conform to that which you've revealed to us as your children? We can't do this on our own. We do not have the strength nor the will to do so. And so we are utterly dependent upon you. And that's why we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week when we finished up Ephesians, I told you that we were going to start uh, four weeks looking at uh, the first question of the Heidelberg catechism, and when I said that, I think that was as puzzled a look as I've ever seen from this congregation looking back at me, and I said, of course, we're going we're gonna to be studying what it's based on, the, the Word of God, and, and many of you, because uh, today when we said it, I'm sure you recognized it, but when I just said that out loud, you probably couldn't figure out what in the world, where is he going with that, and if you know anything about catechisms, you might have thought, well, I, I thought our denomination held to the Westminster Catechism, and that's true. But Heidelberg is, is uh, one of the wonderful uh, things that God has given to his church for teaching. Let me tell you just a little bit about it. It was adopted in 1563, uh, named after the city it was written in, in Germany. Now, just for perspective, historic perspective, that would be a, um, about three generations before the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written, which was in the middle of uh, the 1600s. Now, a catechism is uh, a, a teaching, that's what it means, to catechize is to teach, 
And the way catechisms work is that you ask a question and you also have an answer that's already been established. It's almost like reverse jeopardy kind of thing where uh, so you teach your children or teach adults, you know, here's the question and here's the answer from the Word of God. Uh, catechisms are not equal with the Scripture at all. But faithful catechisms like Westminster and Heidelberg are good summaries of what the Word of God says. So we, we never put them on a same par with the Bible, but they are, they're very useful uh, for us. Um, we've used this first question and answer here in worship a number of times. I love uh, how precise it is, but the other thing I like about the Heidelberg uh, Catechism is that it is not only precise, but it's a warm statement. You know, it's a winsome statement of how God works. And it really, and, and all, how our theology interacts with our life. And so uh, they begin with that question. By the way, they had one for every Sabbath of the year, every Sunday of the year. They had one, and uh, some churches would actually have an afternoon service where they would teach on that particular uh, catechism. But the first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, I told you that it was written uh, more than 350 years ago. How can this be relevant today? Well, if it isn't self-evident to you, some of you already know. I mean, you're already thinking of things where you need an answer to uh, what, what is my only comfort in life and in death. But let me give you just a partial list of some of the things our pastoral staff dealt with this week. Marriage problems, problems with children, children going away to school, not the positive part, the, the, you know, the negative part of that, physical issues, end-of-life issues, death, grief from loss, Fear of loss, financial stress, job dissatisfaction, fear of where our country is headed, depression that in some cases were related to one of those things that I have just listed. I'm not saying our pastors have experienced all of these things. What I'm saying is these are issues from folks in our congregation and that we have contact with. And this is not an unusual week. 
And this is a partial list. Do we need comfort in life and death? The answer is, oh yeah. We, we really need to know the answer to, as a believer, what is my only comfort in life and death? So how does it begin? Well, here's, here's some of the classic ways that people without Christ seek comfort. When we say, what's, what's my comfort? If somebody doesn't have Christ, and unfortunately some believers in moments of weakness seek these for comfort rather than the true answers. But some seek comfort artificially. For some it may be alcohol or, or drugs or prescription drugs or overeating or undereating. For some it's stoicism, to be stoic, I'm, I can do this. I'm going to ignore the pain that I'm going through and I'm going to act as if there is no pain and go through life that way. Stoicism doesn't work, by the way. It will only take you so far. For some, it's some kind of an escape. Not being able to deal with things that, that life throws at one. And so escaping, whether it's in some kind of a, a, a fantasy or uh, a hobby or anything that takes you away from facing up to the realities there. For some, it's just ignoring the problem, the head in the sand. Maybe it'll just go away. Maybe I won't have to deal with it. Now, the problem with all of these is that at best, they're temporary fixes. Right? It, those are only going to be temporary. And they can actually bring more misery because when you sober up, when you come down, when you realize your personal strength and discipline is not going to carry you through and is not sufficient, when you take your head out of the sand and reality hits again, it will come crashing down on you with a vengeance. And one either has to seek more man-made comfort or depression or despair will set in. So how does the catechism, which is based upon the Word of God, how does the catechism answer the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? We're going to look just at the first section today. And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about why that brings comfort. Start with a basic statement. 
I am not my own. How much is that based on the Scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, or do you not know, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. It's almost a direct quote. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul says two things here, basically. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should therefore glorify God in our body. And sandwiched between those two things, he says, you are not your own. Now, some people will hear that as bad news. It's bad news if you're one of several categories of people. If you don't believe in God. Or if you don't believe God is good and will do what is best for you, then it's bad news to find out we belong to Him. But it's also bad news, and this is an area a lot of Christians struggle with, it's bad news if you believe you're in control of your life and your body. However, if you believe in God who is the creator of the universe, and secondly, if you know Him as a father who will always do what's best for His children, And if you understand that you are not in control of your life, remember what I always say to you? Control is what? An illusion. I've said it enough to where people are now saying it back to me. You know, they're saying, you know, control is an illusion. I say, you're right. But it is. If we think we're in, in charge, all you need to do is get a disease and you'll find out real quick you're you're not in control and there's any number of things that that illustrate that we might as well understand but if we understand we're not in control of our life and God is that that father for his children who are trusting in him alone for eternal life then it's good news Now, there's a couple of ways to look at things uh, when you're talking about someone else owning something that you're using. One way is the, the rental car idea. Let me explain the rental car idea. You go to rent a car... ...and uh, you go through all the paperwork and everything... And at some point, they say to you, uh, yes, would you like the extra insurance? And you go, oh yeah, baby. (laughs) And, And the reason you're thinking that is because when you drive out of the rental car place and the first time you drive over the curb, what comes out of your mouth? Glad this isn't my car. People beat rental cars 
and it's not their own, so they don't worry. They're going to take it back. And so they drive some people in such a way that they wouldn't drive with their own car. That's not the idea that we're talking about here. Now, I'm driving a 2003 minivan. I know that at some point you're supposed to outgrow that. You're supposed to get to an age where you don't drive a minivan anymore, but there was, there was a very good reason when we bought that minivan, we had four kids at home and always had other kids piling in there and, and so on. And so I've taken care of that van for the last 12 years, and it's got over 200,000 miles on it and, and so on. But you know what? At this point, if I go to uh, the grocery store and somebody lets the cart go, and it, it comes down, and it hits my minivan, uh, my tendency, I, I, I won't even blink, but I might say, oh, gee, I hope your cart's okay, you know? Because <laughs> that's the, you know, it's okay. That's the kind of shape it's in at this point. I kind of treat it like a, a pickup truck. An old pickup truck. Now, next week, as we mentioned, we're having a car and art show here. And there are going to be classic cars, much older than 2003, all over this. It's an amazing thing to see. It's the only car show I go to. Um, but, but I love looking around at, at these cars and how well taken care of. Now, pretend like we get to the end of the show and I'm standing there eating one of our 2,000 chili dogs that we're going to serve and, uh, and I'm having a cup of coffee, you know, at, at the end. Now, suppose whoever wins best in show came up to me and said... Oh, pastor, you know what? I'm so happy I won Best in Show. I would love for you to drive my car all week long, just to enjoy it, just take it. By the way, this is pure fantasy. This is not going to happen. <laughs> I, I'm, I guarantee... <laughs> we're ignoring the balcony... I'm always happy when people wake up, though, in the middle of a service. Okay, back to the illustration. Okay, so, so I'm, I, you know, he says, uh, I'd love for you to use my car. I promise you, I would not jump in with the chili dog and say, okay, hey, where's the cup holder in here? That's not going to happen. Instead, I would, I'd get rid of that. I'd make sure I didn't have any pins sticking through my pocket or anything like that. I would carefully get in, and I would drive away like the chauffeur for driving Miss Daisy. I mean, I, 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 would, I would be so careful with that. That's the picture. 
that car is not my own, it's of value. And I would want to make good use of it and care for it because of the owner's generosity. God tells us we're not our own. Many in our day would say, well, that's not good news. That's not comforting. I'm in charge here, not God. Let me tell you why this should bring comfort. But first, the fact is that that they actually ratcheted up uh, after saying we're not our own. The next step is I belong in my totality to another. He says that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death. Romans 14, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, We are the Lord's. Get it? That's what what Paul is telling us here. Long before the catechism. It's closely related to the first point, but but it ratchets it up. It says "There's there's nothing about me that is not His, that doesn't belong to Him. Inside and out, soul and body, life and death, it's all His. Now think of the alternative. If the soul was all that mattered, or the body was all that mattered. Either view is heresy, by the way. If it was just our bodies we were concerned about, our eternity would be lost. If it was just our soul that mattered, then we'd have no hope for this life. So how can this be good at all? The third phrase tells us why. The fact that we're not our own is not only okay, it's the best for us. I belong to the one who gave himself for me. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I'm reading through these quickly. 1 Corinthians three twenty one. So let no one boast in men, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. And then our scripture reading talks about waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. See, that's where we're bought to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Now next week we're going to expand on that, that phrase, my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, and talk about just what He did 
to purchase us? What makes him the owner of us? But for now, be assured of this. The God of the universe is never careless with his own possession. We are not disposable rental cars. Jesus' words, let not your heart be troubled. The key to remember when Jesus spoke those words is they were spoken from the upper room the night that he was betrayed and right on the heels of Judas having fled into the night which was followed swiftly by the sad prediction of Peter denying him. Every day, someone's spouse leaves their husband or wife in pursuit of an affair. Every day, someone is betrayed by a friend that they trusted. Every day, someone loses their job. Every day, someone finds out that medical science can't cure their disease. Every day someone loses a baby or a child leaves home for good. These happen to believers and unbelievers alike. The unbeliever who says, I am my own, I am in control, has nowhere to go for real comfort, only escape or despair. But it's only the believer that has Jesus in the middle of these problems saying, let not your hearts be troubled. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, he says, for I have overcome the world. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, the pressure is off. You're not on your own. You belong to your faithful Savior. You're in good hands. Let's bow together. Lord, will you bring us comfort from the truth, not of a catechism, but of your word that tells us we're not our own. But the good news of that is that if we're trusting in Christ, that means we are his. And he will always do what's best for us. We can't always see that, Lord. And when we cannot see that, will you help us to walk not by our sight, but by faith? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.